11.56, so good morning. Um, some of you, before this very moment, already know who I am. Some of you don't. Regardless, you're probably wondering why I'm standing up here. Um, I don't have a great answer to that question. I don't really know myself sometimes. But um, I used to live here in Atlanta. Me and my wife lived here. and So for four or five years, however it works out, we were a part of this group. And so I was asked since we're visiting just to, to say a few things. And so that's why I'm here. Um, if you want to go ahead and kind of put your finger in a place that we're going to be looking at, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that'll be the first place that we read from the Bible this morning. I do want to say a couple things before we read that, though. First of all, um, my wife and I think about you guys all the time. We miss you guys. Uh, And I think we wouldn't be in San Francisco if it weren't for you. You can take that a lot of different ways. Um, But what I mean by that is we wouldn't have had, I think, the the grace and the strength enough to be in a place like that if it weren't for the years we spent here. So thank you for that. Um, And I wanted to talk about something that has been, I think, on my heart and my mind for a while in light of things like moving to California. Um, In light of our move to Atlanta and our experiences here and trying to do the next thing. Um, And that is the feeling of hopelessness. And feeling like sometimes doing hard things isn't worth it. Um, You know, I think probably in one way or another, all of us have moments like that. I'm not sure exactly what triggers those for you. What circumstances bring you to a place like that emotionally. But we all have something that will, right? Whether it be relational problems with a spouse or our parents or a brother or sister or a coworker. Whether it be circumstances financially, you know, you're not able to make the bills meet this month. Or you take a pay cut or a job loss. Or maybe it's the weather, right? It gets to be winter. And it gets dark early and it's rainy and it's cold and also your work's hard you know you're not making the money you wish you made you don't have the friends you wish you had but maybe it's you know spiritual things if we're being honest i'm tired of being tempted in this way why can't i just do it right i don't like that xyz is expected of me right i don't like being thought of as like an outsider among my friends or my family or my coworkers because I believe ABC things. I don't want to say those awkward things to say to people because I believe them. You know, it's easier just to like let it go and not bring it up. And so sometimes when all these things start to stack up, we start to think, you know, is it really worth it? Like we, and you know, we may not say that exact thing, but maybe we just feel it. We feel that pressure of like, do I really actually think this is worth it? Do I really think that doing what is right and consequently what is often hard is worth the pain and the struggle? Do I really believe that? And I think that's something we've had to think about um, 
if we're being really honest about it, is it worth, like, when we moved to San Francisco, many of you don't know why, who we are or why we moved or anything like that. Um, but a big part of our move was to challenge ourselves, spiritually and in a lot of other ways. And so we thought, well, Atlanta's been good for us. We've had people strengthening us. Maybe it's our time to go and strengthen new people and be a strength to others. And then in the midst of all that, there's challenges that come with that thought process. There's challenges that come with the reality once you finally make that decision. And you start to ask yourself, was this worth it? Um, to condense a longer conversation between me and my wife and over months and years, we've settled on things like what is presented to us in 1 Corinthians. So hang on to that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 and just kind of walk with me as we think about the letter to the Corinthians as a whole. Do you think of the Corinthian letter as like a joyous letter? Like if you're familiar with it at all, the things that come to mind are like problems, right? Chapter 1, right off the bat, Paul writes to these people in Corinth who are Christians. They're believers. But he says, you guys are divided. There's divisions among you. Some of you say that you're of Apollos. Some of you say that you're of Paul. But basically, you've created factions. You don't see yourselves as a unit. You see the camps that you all kind of fall into. And that's creating very practical divisions. Like you don't have part with one another, right? But then you think about like maybe some of the things that are said in chapters 5 and 6, that there's actually those that are Christians that are spending time together that are known to be committing sexual immorality. Specifically, a man is mentioned as having his mother or his father's wife, which is a really weird thing to think about. And you think about all the things that that might encompass, like um, in that group and among his family and all the problems that would bring out. And you think about in like chapter six that Paul actually talks about how some of them have had disagreements and they've taken each other to court and are suing each other. Imagine being a part of a church that was doing that. I don't know, maybe some of you have. I can't, I've never been in that situation. It's hard to even fathom, but I'm sure it happens. That's what was going on in Corinth. Right? You get to chapters 8 and 9 and you realize that some of them have come from pagan backgrounds and have some conscientious issues with some of the traditions that are associated with that. And while Paul knows that there's really no truth to an idol, that there really is no thing that has truly been given over to a false god because they don't exist, he says, hey, some of your brothers might have a problem with that, so you may have to give up eating certain things to help their conscience, right? What a problem in the church, you know? If one of you guys was like, Josh, like, it really bothers me that you eat hamburgers. You got to give it up. That'd be a problem for me, <laughs> right? But, like, I think that the instruction for me is like, hey, give up the liberty that you have if it's going to help your brother. But, like, what a problem that could be. What a, what a hassle, right? Think about as you move forward in the book in, uh, or in the letter, chapter 11, chapter 14, that how that church wasn't functional. They weren't orderly. It was just kind of chaotic. People had, like, spiritual gifts, even miraculous ones, but they were trying to, like, essentially talk over each other, use their gift louder than the person to the left or the right. Imagine being in that assembly and what that would look like. Right? You get to chapter 13, and Paul just says it most fundamentally that they don't really love each other. Right? 
he goes into all the ways of what love actually is and what it actually looks like and by implication that's not them they're just like a banging symbol right and in chapter 15 they even have disagreements the implication is they have disagreements or just misunderstandings amongst them of if there's even a resurrection is there a resurrection? Is our bodies are our bodies involved? Like, how does all that work out? And I can't answer every question of that, but in much of chapter fifteen, is Paul addressing some of those concerns or confusions? And that's the first text I want to read is actually in verse fifty-eight of First Corinthians fifteen. You can easily imagine the Corinthians receiving a letter like this, and not just receiving it. Put yourself in their shoes. They're living this life every day, where their brother and their sister are of Paul and Apollos and they're suing each other and there's sexual immorality and they don't really love each other and they're like talking over each other imagine being in that situation every single day every Sunday those are your brothers and sisters can't you imagine yourself asking is this worth it is this hassle worth it are these people worth it are my beliefs worth dealing with this 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 58 Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul says everything that he says through 15 chapters of Corinthians, essentially 15 chapters of him identifying problems, right? And yet he's still somehow able to honestly say, inspired by God, that their labor is could possibly be not in vain. There's a way for your labor to not be worthless. The temptation for me in a situation like that would be like, this is all for naught. Like, vanity of vanities. Being here, being among these people, trying is useless. right? But some of the things that Paul identifies as making labor not in vain, maybe most fundamentally, is how he says your labor in the Lord is not in vain. When you work to do things in God's way, with God's people, with God's help, that's not a waste. There's a lot of circumstances that might lead us to believe or feel that it is a waste. But most fundamentally, our labor in the Lord, the truth that should undergird us is that that's never a waste. No matter how hard it is, no matter how uncomfortable it is, it's not a waste. But did you notice some of the other things said in that verse? Some of the things that are actionable, right? That you can actually do instead of just think. It's important that we think our labor in the Lord is actually not a waste. And so that moves us to be steadfast, immovable, and to abound. Actually, it's like Paul's saying, double down on your work. You know, some of us, the natural inclination is when we get frustrated, we let up. Right? Let me back off a little bit. And essentially, Paul's saying, no, double down, abound in it. Be steadfast, be immovable. Don't, don't waver, keep at it. Keep your nose on the grindstone, some of us might say. And so would you feel like abandoning the work if you're a Corinthian receiving this letter? I'm going to be real honest with you, I would. I'd be thinking about like just not going to the Corinthian church, right? I'm going to go find me another church. That's how we would talk about it. You know, these people, they're nice. I want the best for them, but I can't help them. Right? Like, this is above me. Would you feel like if you did somehow manage to stay, that you were just spinning your wheels? That was like, 
you were good enough to stay, but you just kind of expected that nothing would ever come of it, right? Paul, and I think God, is trying to encourage people that feel like that, that that isn't the case. And the way I want to talk about this is actually primarily from the book of Judges. So if you want to turn to the book of Judges, which is before Corinthians a good bit, it's in the Old Testament, uh, Judges chapter 6, I want to talk about a man named Gideon, and I want to talk about him in light of kind of this, because I think his life illustrates much of this. Um, One caveat I want to kind of say before is, and this may be clear, that like in Philippians 2.16, it talks about not making your faith in vain, like not having your faith become vain because you give up your faith. That's not really what I'm talking about today. What I'm talking about today is not the people who just give up their faith altogether, though certainly don't do that. Don't shipwreck your faith. What I'm talking about is people who kind of walk this line of they're not going to give up their faith per se, but they're also not going to labor steadfastly. And maybe that's the temptation for more of us than just giving up altogether. And I think that was maybe Gideon's struggle. Let's read uh, in Judges chapter 6 and verse 1. Now, keep in mind what we've just talked about the Corinthians, and then think about the circumstances of Gideon's life here in Judges chapter 6. Verse 1, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Midian is is an enemy country, right? So they're in the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, in the caves, and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Let's keep reading in verse 7 here. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you've not obeyed my voice. Last verse, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now let's, let's just make sure we set the scene here and we gather what we read. The context of Gideon's life is 1 through 11, right? What does Gideon's life look like? Imagine being born into the circumstances and we're trying to paint the picture. Well, one, the nation that Gideon is born of, Israel, is evil. 
Now, that's a generalization, but when God looks down at the nation, he sees generally an evil people. And if we understand who the Israelites are supposed to be, that's like seeing something that's white look like it's black. Like God should have seen a nation of holy, righteous people. And in verse 1, he looks down and sees a nation of evil people, right? And so one, we, or we already recognize that Gideon is in the midst of something that's probably depressing and frustrating, right? But not only that, because they're evil, and as we read at the end of verse 10, they hadn't obeyed the voice of the Lord. God had promised them if that was going to be how they were going to act, he was going to curse them, that he was going to have enemies defeat them and overpower them, right? And that's exactly what's happening. If you read what we just read, it's like Midian, the Amalekites, it says all the people of the east were just making their lives miserable. Every time they planted crops, as soon as those crops were ready to be harvested, here they came again like locusts and would just take it from them. And it was so bad that it says that they were actually living in caves. They couldn't even like live in houses and things because of the people oppressing them. I have no idea what that would feel like to live in that kind of a reality where your oppressor is so severe that they reap all the fruit of your labor and you can't even live in like a house. You got to go find rocks to live in, right? I'm not sure if any one of us can relate to that like in a literal way, but you can imagine what that might feel like. And then you get to verse 11 and Gideon is shown to us. And Gideon is doing work that typically would be done outside, and he's doing it in a wine press to hide from his oppressors, right? What an odd thing, but that's Gideon's life. This is what he's been born into. This is the circumstances he's dealing with. Can you imagine him feeling some of the things that we saw that the Corinthians might be feeling? Like, man, we're supposed to be God's people, and here we are living in caves, having to hide when we do work. We don't get to eat our crops. This is a far cry from what we thought we were going to be, right? Just like the Corinthian church, they responded to the gospel. They became Christians and then were probably a far cry from what they thought they were going to be, right? What are we supposed to be seeing in this? I think one important thing um, that we can probably relate to is that Gideon perhaps could make a lot of excuses, right? That Gideon had really, we would say, every excuse, every right to complain, to make excuses about being weak and small and insignificant and hurt and helpless and unproductive, and that any work that God might have him do would be useless, right? We haven't seen that in our reading yet, but you can just imagine that those thoughts would exist in Gideon. I don't think it would be a stretch to, to think those to be true. But let's, let's keep reading in verse 12 and see kind of how this plays out. Beginning in verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's Gideon, and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Let's just pause for a moment. He's beating out his cross, his wheat in a wine press, hiding from his enemies. And God comes to him and says, I'm with you, O mighty man. Gideon's probably like, what in the world? Who are you talking to? Right? Well, let's keep reading here. 
Verse 13, and Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if, if, right, conditional, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Does that sound familiar? Have you ever said things like that? If I'm yours, if I'm saved, then why am I dealing with this? Why are people like this? Why are circumstances tough? Why aren't other Christians being who they're supposed to be, right? Why is my church so messed up? Or why is X, Y, Z going on? Why is my boss mean to me? Like, why don't I get the money that I should be getting? Or why don't my family respect me? Or whatever it is. We all say things like this in moments of desperation to God. Why? If you're with me, why? Right? Look at what happens after this. Let's keep reading here. And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Don't we say that kind of thing? I believe that Jesus raised from the dead. I believe that people were healed left and right when Jesus walked around and when the apostles walked around. But where are those great works right now? I'm desperate. I'm waiting for a miracle. Like, where is it? Right? Gideon felt that, even in his day. Where where are the great mighty deeds of the Lord that I've always heard about? They're not here right now, right? Let's keep reading. Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Verse 14, and this is God's response to that kind of question from Gideon. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian, do not I send you? Where's God's answers? I, I think this is really weird. God, like, I don't know if it's fair to say he sidesteps the question, but it's almost as if he ignores it. There's a lot of things that we could say about this that I think are true. There's a lot of observations that we could make about this that would be helpful and good. But the one that I want to focus in on is what God actually says to Gideon in response to these questions. First of all, he reiterates that Gideon has strength, that he has a might of his, right? And I think it's founded in that God is the one sending him, right? Because Gideon's in the wine press hiding from his enemies. He's not like objectively a mighty man, right? Like he doesn't seem impressive. He hasn't actually done anything like strong and courageous yet. But God is sending him and sees might in him. And the important thing that God is kind of, I think, focusing on in this exchange with Gideon is that God is the one sending. I don't want to go on a diatribe, go on a rabbit trail about this, but I think this is important as we kind of see ourselves in this idea. It's like, is hard work hopeless? Is remaining steadfast and immovable a waste of my time? Is it a vanity? Not if God is the one sending you. That's what Gideon needed to hear. But look, that's not where the end of the dia- that's not the end of the dialogue. Did I not send you verse 15? And he said to him, this is God uh, Gideon speaking to God, "Please Lord, how can I save Israel?" Right. Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. All right, so Gideon kind of jumps on board a little bit kind of ignores that he had other questions, but he says, okay, well, if you're sending me and I'm mighty, like, how is this going to work? I'm not impressive. My family's not impressive. My clan and my tribe aren't impressive. Like, we're not impressive people. How do you intend to do this? (laughs) Right? 
we have similar questions. If we can get past some of the questions that Gideon had in our own desperation, we might ask the same thing. How am I supposed to be steadfast? How am I going to be the one that's immovable? Me? Abound in good work? How? My family is not like strong believers. My friends aren't being helpful. My church isn't backing me. Right? How am I going to be the one to do this stuff? And the Lord said to him, verse 16, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Has God moved at all, really, from like what's important in this? Like Gideon had, a, I think, a legitimate kind of first round of questions. And God said, I'm the one sending you. And then Gideon had, like, I think, another legitimate second round of questions. And God says, I'm the one sending you. I'm the one that will be with you. And I will cause you to strike them as one man. And so Gideon says this, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Remember, this is an angel of the Lord. Gideon doesn't have the benefit of what we have, right? He's not like got like the Bible in front of him. And he's not saying like, all right, angel of the Lord, let me turn to this book. Okay, you're saying consistent things with what I read here. He just has to trust kind of what's in front of him is from God. And so he says, well, give me a sign, right? And he says like that God is willing to kind of stay until he comes back. And so in verse 19, Gideon goes to the house and prepares a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour and the meat he puts in a basket and broth he puts in a pot. And he brought them under the terebinth tree and presented them to the angel of the Lord. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour broth over it. This is starting to look like a story, if you recall, in Elijah's day when he confronts all those prophets of Baal, right? It's like you take the thing and you dump a bunch of liquid on it, and you can imagine what's about to happen, right? Look at what happens. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out with the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord just vanishes. Does Gideon know who he's dealing with now? You should. Does this answer every question that Gideon has? Mm -mm. He still doesn't know how God's going to do it. He doesn't know like where God has been all these years. He's not sure why the Midianites are necessarily doing what they're doing to them. But now he knows that the person, the one that's talking to him, has power and authority to be saying this stuff. That's all he knows. He doesn't have every answer to every facet of every question. Then Gideon perceived in verse 22 that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. I think this is really important for us. This is you and me, if we're being really honest. And it may not be you today, but it might have been you yesterday. This may be you tomorrow. You're going to have a time in your life where you really question, is what I I am dealing with 
the circumstances I'm faced up against, the people I'm around, are they worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it for me to be steadfast and immovable? Is it possible for me to abound in the work? And I, I don't know if you'll be able to remember Gideon's story, but my hope is for you that you would just think, even if you don't remember all the details, if nothing else sticks with you today, that you would say, I think Gideon's story might have something for me. And you can go read, and maybe you have to look up, where's Gideon? And you find out, okay, that's Judges 6. That's where his story starts. And you start reading. You can find yourself. God has been dealing with people like this forever. We've always been this way. We get discouraged. Circumstances are tough. Our friends and our families let us down. Our nation might be evil. And yet God comes to us, and he doesn't answer every question, but he gives us reason to believe he's the one who's sending us. And that we should have strength to accomplish what he's sending us to do. And it's not until we believe that, did you notice, that then Gideon receives a promise. What's the promise that Gideon gets? At the very end of our reading, Peace be to you, don't fear, you shall not die. I think very literally this was true for Gideon. If We're not going to read the rest of Gideon's story, but spoiler alert, He strikes the Midianites as one man. He doesn't die. And there's a lot of weird ways that that happens. A lot of curveballs. A lot of things that frustrate Gideon. He's not perfect throughout the process. But God is with him. And he gets it done. And he doesn't die. Turn, Turn with me to Hebrews 11 where Tim read for us. There's a couple things I want us to point out. And just see. Verse 32, when this writer writes this section of Hebrews, he spends a lot of time identifying God's people throughout history and the faith that they had and how they manifested that faith in their life. And if you were to start in verse 1 and roll through the characters, the people of history, there's a lot of struggle and turmoil in every single person's life that's represented. Many of them, we know a lot of those points. They're in the Bible for us to read their story. Some of them we know less about. But all of them, I promise you, had moments where they might say, is this worth it? Is it worth doing what God's asking me to do? Can I trust that he's with me? Am I really going to be able to do this stuff? But then you get to verse 32, And we kind of hit fast forward. We stop reading in detail about the stories. And the writer just says, and what more should I say? And he just starts listing really quickly of people. And guess who's the first one on the list? Gideon. What more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. Who through faith, does Gideon in what we just read look like a super faithful guy? He looks like a really confused, hurt guy. But at the end of being proven that at least it's God in front of him, even though he doesn't have all his questions answered, he says, it's you, and he builds an altar and he worships. Gideon, verse 33, was able to do what he did through faith, and he conquered kingdoms, he enforced justice. Look at this, he obtained promises. He stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty war, put foreign armies to flight. 
Women received back the dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment, stoned. They were sawn into. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Look at this part. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Sounds like Israel, doesn't it? Sounds like Gideon's life. He had to wander about in dens and caves of the earth, and so did his family, and so did everybody else in his nation and in his day because of the consequence of sin and the consequence of other people. But through their faith, they persevered moments like that. And God sees the faithful in those times despite frustrations and disappointments and concerns. And his commentary in Hebrews about them is that the world isn't worthy of people like that. The people that, despite all those things, are still willing to accept the evidence that God is sending them and is able to be with them and support them in their struggle. But one key thing that I want us to end on is that promise that Gideon wouldn't die. We have the same promise. You know, in in the frustrations of our life, in the difficulty of remaining faithful through the, the highs and the lows and the relationships and, you know, moving from one end of the country to the other, starting new jobs, having a family, having people die, having friends that you lose contact with, all the things that happen in life, God says, you won't die. You won't. Now, it may not be in a literal kind of like, go fight the Midianites and you won't die kind of way like Gideon's was. But the point of this text, Gideon's story, Hebrews 11, is not so much about the fact that Gideon like never physically died. He actually did. He didn't die in battle. God promised him he wouldn't die doing those things, but he did someday die. But Hebrews 11 is pointing out to us that these people through faith won, even though they weren't there to be observed on the earth, they weren't dead. They, like God is the God of Abraham. He is. Abraham still is there to have a God, right? In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, let's end where we started. 1 Corinthians 15. I actually want to read beginning in verse 50, and we'll read up to where we started in verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the reality of the resurrection. It's the reality that we will not die that Paul, despite all the trouble that the Corinthians had found themselves in, despite all the discouragement and probably the thoughts of quitting, of giving up, it's not worth it. It's all vanity. It's in light of that promise that Paul can get to verse 58. Say, therefore, despite all the things that I wrote to you about that you're getting wrong, that are troubles and stresses and that you need to fix and work on, be steadfast, be immovable, always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why? Because there's a resurrection. You will not die. I hope this is encouraging for you. Um, There's been a lot of stuff in the last eight months that has been growing pains for us in our move, leaving you guys. But it's verses like this that remind us it's, it's worth whatever trouble, inconvenience, struggle that we may have in pursuing God to not stop, to not give up when our families think we're weird. Not to give up when friends frustrate us and maybe Christians aren't living up to the calling with which they've been called. Churches aren't the churches that they're supposed to be and they're making bad decisions and they're fractured and broken and they're talking over each other and nonsense is going on. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Because you're not going to die. It's worth it. If there's anyone here this afternoon that could use the prayers of this group, I have five years of experience to say that this is the group you want praying for you. And so you need to make that known to these people and to God. We invite you to do that while we're singing this song. Sing five.